This week is Parashat Shmot. We're beginning, of course, Sefer Shmot, and a well-known story that shows up at the very beginning of the parasha is the story of Hamialdota Ivriot. And here's the text in front of us uh, from Parak Aleph. And just a very quick background is Paro turns to his people and essentially holds up B'nai Israel as the boogeyman. That we have to deal wisely with them because we're concerned that their population will outpace ours. And then either it means they will despoil the land and leave or they'll become a fifth column when another enemy attacks us. Either way, here's a strategy. Now, the, the first part of his strategy um, is, uh, is to put them to enforce a hard labor tax on them and put them to work, which the notion is that in one way or another, and it's unclear how, in one way or another, is going to deplete them, either deplete their numbers or their strength or something of that. In the meantime, and seemingly not as an option B, but rather as a parallel track, he speaks to the Mialdota Ivriot. And here we go. Now, before going further, um, we're given these two names, Shifra and Puah, that we never hear again. Who are they? The answer is they're Shifra and Puah. Now, what kind of names are Shifra and Puah? The answer is they're both Egyptian names. Um, and so, if we want to identify Mialdota Ivriot as Hebrew midwives, meaning they themselves are Hebrew, then we have a little bit of an issue, which is that they have Egyptian names. And one of the famous Midrashic tropes of the schut of Bnei Yisrael was Shiloshinu Shmam. But you can always make the argument that Shifra is a borrowed name, and you can also make an argument that Shifra is a professional name. And Yosef also had an Egyptian name, Safna Paneach. You can make that argument. The argument, though, that these Mialdot are actually uh, Ivriot themselves becomes very difficult in light of what happens here. Now notice the language. Paro says to them, and Paro summons these two women, and says, when you help birth the Ivriot, sounds like these women themselves are not Ivriot, when you go to help birth the Ivriot, we'll talk about that in a minute, if it's a boy, then you kill him, and if it's a girl, then you let her live. Now, we have several problems here. The, mo- the first most obvious one is, how do they expect to get away with this? In other words, if every time that say, oh, Miles told it's a boy, and then immediately, oh, oops, oops he died, uh, that's going to become very suspicious, and very quickly, these Ivriot will not be summoned anymore. Uh, there was a suggestion made a number of years ago, uh, which I think has a lot of merit to it, which is that we have some evidence that in ancient G- Egyptian society, they had the ability to do some neonatal or prenatal investigation, and the Ovnaim may be a reference to that, actually having certain Egyptian religious uh, connotations. And uh, the Ovnaim, which shows up one other time in Tanakh, all the Rishonim quoted here, from Yimiyahu Yodchet, is the potter's wheel, uh, that it may have been a prenatal test that they did to determine the gender of the baby. And the idea was that the midwife was then supposed to create, if you will, an abortion. And therefore, nobody would have boys. And if it was a boy, she would do something to abort it. If a girl let her live, maybe. 
In any case, what's the likelihood that Paro is going to entrust this awful, terrible task to Ivriot? And what's the chance that they would even be, uh, you would think that they would carry it through? So watch what, how the text deals with it. The Mialdot feared Elohim. We're going to talk about that in a second also. And they didn't do what Melech Yitzrayim said to them. Rather, they kept the boys alive. They didn't kill them. Now, the notion of Yirat Elohim uh, is actually a universal one, not a national one. We are familiar with Yirat Shamayim as a notion. We are, no, we are familiar with the mitzvat aseh of et Hashem Elokech And our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is defined in Tanakh as a relationship with Yud Kevavke. And we fear Hashem. Fearing Elohim is something that we find dafka in a non-Jewish context. For instance, when Yosef is talking to Mrs. Potiphar and telling him why he will not give in to her seduction or demands, he says, It would be a sin to Elohim to do that. If you take a look at, in the story of Nineveh, it's the people fear Elohim. And so here the notion is that these women have essential morality and they won't do what the king said to them and said they kept the boys alive. Now, who they are is going to be kind of critical for the, for the crux of the Shear, but I just want to put that out there as a, an introduction. And by the way, the Abravanel does make the claim that these Mialdot were themselves Mitzriot, who are Mialdot Eta Ivriot, meaning the, the midwives for the Ivriot. As a number of the Rishonim point out, though, regardless of their identity, uh, and their names are Shifran Pua, regardless of their identity, uh, these can't be the only Mialdot Ivriot. For a huge nation, have only two women, midwives, is hard to believe. So it either means they are two of the midwives, or else they're the two sort of in charge of that station. Whatever. So this is their excuse. They don't say straight, we're not going to do it, it's unethical, but rather it's murder. Now notice, these women are not like the Mitzriot, which means... These women themselves are midwives who birthed Mitzriot and Ivriot. Again, making it far more likely that they themselves are Mitzriot. And why are the Ivriot different? Kishayotena, simple pshat chayotena means they themselves are midwives, meaning, meaning we, they give birth before we show up. They don't come to us. By the time we show up, the baby's born. Now notice, Paro doesn't turn around at that point and say, well, once he's born, kill him if he's a boy. That's enough of an answer to Paro. Because Paro's not asking them to kill live babies, but rather in utero. And the point is that once the baby's born, it's too late. And so they say, once we get there, the baby's born, we're <laughs> fallen. Okay. Now, this, the, that's all background, and here's the real crux of the Shior, is Vayetev Elohim la Mialdot, God treats the Mialdot, and again, Elohim, well, the nation increases. Now, this is good for the Mialdot for several reasons. First of all, it's more business for them. And second of all, it's a reward for their behavior that they're successful in not quashing this population. And now, Now, they feared Elohim. Okay? Those three words, Vayas Lahem Batim, which really should be the title of the Shior, 
are, each one of them is confusing. Each one of them is ambiguous, shall we say. All right. What does Vayas mean? He made. Who's the he? Look at the Pasuk and you'll see the problem. Paro tells them to act and they don't act. They don't act because they fear God. Vayas might be Paro. Paro's reaction to they're not living up to his, his decree, they're not acting on his decree, is to build Batim. In which case, what does that mean? Or it's Hashem. It's going to be one of those two. There's no other subjects here. The problem, of course, is Lahem. Who's Lahem? We think it's the Mialdot, correct? But then what should it say? It should say Lahen. Feminine. Torah knows how to talk in the feminine. Why was it say Lahem? And the last one is Batim. What does that mean? He builds houses? What does it mean, Batim? So that's why who built, made what, for whom, and why? And the why is going to be determined by what he built. What's the motivation? The response to all of this is Vaitsav Parolachola Molemor. Now he makes a public decree. Right? Any boy that's born gets thrown into the Yor. I know that I'm familiar with the Midrash and Rashi's comment here that now the decree was on everybody, including Egyptians. Uh, the Septuagint, by the way, here has uh, adds in the word Ebrayo, uh, which is Kolaben Ha'ivri Ha'ilod, which, by the way, makes a lot of sense in context. And the idea is now that it's not a prenatal abortion, as it were, in, in, in utero, but rather, once the kid is born, if he's, Egypt, if he's a Hebrew, if it's a boy, then throw him in the river, which would then explain that the Egyptians are listening up, etc. How does this whole thing fit? What's the sequence of events? So what's this Fayas Lahem Batim? So, I want to um, explore this, but I want to give an introduction, which is a very general nature about the methodology of the study of Tanakh, and this is as good an ashir as any to, uh, as an example to talk about it. When we look at these psukim, what are we trying to figure out? What is our job as students? So the answer would very much depend on what our perspective is. There is no single answer to that. We could be looking at these psukim for inspiration. We could lo- be looking at these psukim for background. We could be looking at these psukim and trying to figure out what they mean and what they're trying to communicate to us. It really depends, it depends on perspective. The perspective that was common, not only common, but it was almost exclusive within Chazal and the period after Chazal up until the 10th century was, what lessons can I gain from this story? What we would call Midrash. Chazal at no point become Pashtanim. Matter of fact, Chazal are not Parshanim. That's not their job to explain what the Psukim mean. Whether it's because, as they themselves say, Ein pshuto, and we all understand what the Psukim mean, and now it's our job to mine the Psukim for further meaning, further ideas, further lessons, further values, um, both values of what to do, and in the cases of stories of Bilam and Lavan, etc., values of what not to do. And that was the mode of the approach that really existed up until the 10th century. 
for reasons that are beyond what we have time to talk about today, but that changed. And the change really took place starting really in the Babylonian influence that went all the way to Sfarad, but it also at the same time was impacting in Germany and in France. And for that reason, we usually start our study of pshat, meaning I want to look at the text and say, what does it mean? What do the words mean? We usually start that with Rashi. And Rashi was a trailblazer, an innovator, that we don't really, we can't even perceive of how much, because we're so used to Rashi's presence in our learning, we don't realize what a revolution he was involved with. Of starting to look at the psukim and say, let me see what it means, and let me explain the words, and in some places the grammar, and explain how these things connect and give proper background in order to be able to walk the student through the text, which didn't exist before. Of Sadia and others were involved in somewhat similar projects, but nothing of the scope of Rashi. And so what Rashi does, and we're going to see Rashi in a few minutes here, what Rashi does, though, is he will often take the more most popular Midrashim, popular in his circle and in his day, and incorporate them into his explanation as part of explaining the Psukim. So to Rashi, the notion of eschewing the Midrashic approach, eschewing the extra lessons to be learned approach, was not where he was going. But he was leading in that direction, which then gave birth, of course, to the Rashbam and others, who became much more pure Pashtanim, and had one concern, which is, what does the Pasuk mean in its context, in its historical context, in its societal context, in its textual context, what does it mean? And that's what we're going to try to explain. Okay. I want to put that out there because we're going to see a wide range of approaches to understanding this Pasuk, and we will see that some of them hit more towards what's actually happening in the Pasuk, and others more towards lessons to be gained. All of it true, all of it valid, all of it great, but different perspectives. Okay. If you take a look, for instance, we'll start with the Septuagint. Septuagint, the translation of the Torah into Greek, translates Vayaslam Batim as a poesan eotois oikias, which simply means he made for them houses. Doesn't help us at all. Now, you may say, if it doesn't help us at all, why are you, why are you looking at it? So I heard it once from Professor Lyman, a number of times, Professor Lyman, this point. When you do research and you look for answers and you find that you get no help from the from the Septuagint. You get no help from a particular midrash, whatever it may be. You didn't waste your time. If you know that there is a an island, and on that island there's a buried treasure, and you search three quarters of the island and you don't find it there, you've accomplished a lot because you know that the treasure is in the other quarter. In other words, looking through and finding that I don't get any help in here or any help here, good, and I can now limit where I'm going to look to other places, it also may tell me that I have to be looking at this more straightforwardly because both the Septuagint and now Targumunclus, Vavad Lohan Batin, just read it straight up. But the Midrash in Shemot Rabbah um, has, has, makes, has a Midrash about it. Rav Valevi, Padamar Batei Kihuna Ubatei Levia. Now, by the way, according to that, who is Vayaas? It ain't Paro, it's Hashem. Who is Lahem? The midwives. And what is Batim? Batim does not mean physical houses. It means dynasties. 
Bate Kiuna Ubate Livia. Bachadamar Bate Malchut. Now, what's where's that coming from? Because if you if you recall, there's also machloket about the identity of, the identity of Shifran Pua. One opinion is Isha Ubita, that is Yocheved and Miriam, and that would be Bate Kiuna Ubate Livia and Bate Malchut, because Miriam is related to the house of Yehuda. Or it is Yocheved Chamotav Kalata, a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, which makes it Yocheved and Elisheva, Aaron's wife. And uh, that's Bate Kuna, Bate because, of course, that's where Kuna comes from. You understand the great difficulties in reading Shifran Pua, besides the language issue and the other issues we brought as being. Yocheved and either Miriam or Elisheva, because remember, this happens before Moshe is born, and Aaron's three years older than him. So, what's the likelihood that Aaron's wife is already acting as a midwife at this point? We'll leave that. But notice again, the Batim here are, are dynasties, not physical houses. Rashi quotes that, and he quotes both Batekuna Ulavia Umalchut. So, he combines Rav and Levi. Because, of course, if he's got Yocheved and Miriam in this. So he's got it all, all covered. The Ibn Ezra supports this idea in a different way. Meaning, he supports the idea that Bayit is not a physical house, but it's a dynasty. And he quotes a pasuk in Shmuel that Hashem promised David. He Bayit God will make a household out of you. And that doesn't mean a physical house. It means a dynasty. And now, but he says it's not Malchut, but rather Shir Bazaram, meaning they themselves have a lot of kids. In other words, this, the, the reward for them keeping these kids alive is they had a lot of kids. Okay. V'yomar HaGaon, which sometimes is Sadia, unclear here. He asalahem Batim. Actually, he built houses for them. Who built houses? Hashem built houses. So they could hide and not be found because Paro was after them. Interesting. Suddenly, Batim takes on a possible meaning of a physical structure, but it's still Hashem making it. Take a look at the Chizkuni. The Chizkuni is bothered by the word Lahem because it should be Lahen. And yet the Chizkuni says, you know what? We find sometimes in Tanakh that Lahem, Lahen, eh, mix them up. But then he says, what are Batim? Batim are your household, your kids, right? Which means, again, this idea that they have lots of kids. But look at the last thing that the Chizkuni says. It says, Vayaslem paro batim. Whoa! For the first time, we're hearing that Vayaslem may not be Hashem, it may be paro. And now look at the Psukim. Let's see what the rest of his comment. Vayaslem paro batim la'amod bam v'lo yuzazot mihem. In other words, Paro imprisoned them. So now take a look at the Pasuk. Meaning, since they feared God and didn't fulfill Paro's decree, he locked them up. A whole different take on Vayasla and Batim. And it's not a reward now, it's uh, it's a punishment from, from Paro. Okay? The Tav Kabbalah says Abayid could also be referring to greatness, and he's going back to the Yocheved and Miriam picture. But we're going to go now a little bit before Rashi. Around the same time as Rashi, a little bit before in Byzantium, 
There is a pirush being written in a midrashic style called the Lekach Tov, and his student is the Seichel Tov. You see them in 12 and 13, who both say the same thing. Kevan shera'a paro, shayim adot chomlota b'nei Israel. Paro saw that these midwives were having compassion, not killing these kids. Amad v'tikein batim la mitzriim. Who was vayas lahem batim? Paro made houses lahem. Lahem now is masculine because he made it for the mitzriim, the yotchenim Israel. In other words, I can't trust these midwives. So I'm going to build a little Egyptian neighborhood right around where they live so they can keep an eye on them. And you see that the Seichel Tovah student says the same thing. Now, the Rashbam, moving ahead, picks up a similar thread that it is Paro building it and it's physical houses. In other words, now that these midwives have turned to be turncoats, not that he builds houses for the Egyptians to keep them nearby and make sure they don't leave, but rather he locks them up so that they don't go and help birth Hebrew women. Right? The Bechor Shor says, Vayaslam Batim is again this idea of Kavod. And uh, the Rabbin Abache also says that it could be like a prison. Right? Um, the Malbim has a whole different take. And he, and he, He's picking up on the Abravanel here. Shasam batim yuchadim shasham right? Which means that this is what Hashem did, and Hashem sets up houses for them to be regularly there, so that any mialetid can come, any yoletid, any woman giving birth can go to them, and therefore they can um, they can uh, give birth and help out. In other words, this is midah keneg midah. They did everything they do. They could. To save lives, they're given a chance to save more lives and give more birthing. And again, the real question is, who is Vayas? If Vayas is Hashem, this is all good. And the Batim are either physical houses so they can help give birth, physical houses so they can be hidden from power who wants to kill them, maybe. Or it is houses of Kuna, houses of glory, etc., dynasties. But if it's Paro, then Paro is either making houses for them to lock them up or, or Lahem, for Mitzrim to be in the neighborhood. A very different approach to this Pasuk. We find one of the less known Rishonim, Rabbi Chaim Paltiel, says the following, Right? We saw that already. That the, that the Mialdot should be locked up and not be able to get out. This is another approach, so we see both approaches Including the one that we saw with in the Lekach Tov and Seichel Tov, he quotes it also, okay, um, and that same approach. Now, what we've seen over the course of the last 18 minutes or so since we started looking at this parasha is a wide range, which is really Shnaim Shahain Harbei, meaning we look back at the Pasuk, Vayas Lahem Batim, and I ask three questions Who built, for whom, and why? Or shall we say, who built, who built what, and for whom? And the behind it is why. So now, the who and the why are going to go together. If the who is Hashem, the why is some sort of reward. And the reward then distributes into either a reward to be able to continue doing what you've been doing, give, birthing more Jewish kids, or a reward in that you get posterity and you have a family that's well-known, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. 
On the other hand, if Ayas is paro, then the why is some sort of punishment or uh, protection against what's been happening, a response to what's been happening. In which case, by the way, the houses are definitely physical houses. And are they prisons? Are they houses for the Egyptians, which is the Lahem? Two broad directions with lots of details, and almost everybody takes a different approach here. It's hard to find two Mefarshim who uh, who agree on this, although we find several of them quoting earlier Mefarshim. Um, I'd like to suggest, perhaps, uh, a different way of looking at it, at this also. Um, if you take a look at this particular story here, uh, you see uh, that it is structured in such a way, <clears throat> sorry, it is structured in such a way, um, there we go, um, that you have the story of the Mialdot at the beginning and at the end, and it's Paro's interactions with them, if you see on top. Pasuk Tedvav and the end of Chafalif and Chafbet are Paro and the Mialdot. In Tedvav and Tedzayin, Paro is giving a command, and in Chafbet is Paro's command to everybody. So this is all Paro. In the middle, you find Pasuk Yodzayin and Chaf, if you see them surrounding, are their relationship with God. They fear God and don't do it. And now God is good to them, and they become. Uh, populace, and in the very middle of it is the interaction between Paro and the Mialdot. So you notice it's Paro and the Mialdot, the Mialdot and God, Paro and the Mialdot, the Mialdot and God, Paro and the Mialdot and everybody else. So there's a pattern here. But not only that, but if you look at it in te- in the beginning and the end, who's talking? In Tedvav, Tedzayin, and Chafet, who's talking? The answer is Paro. Everybody else is listening. In the middle one, who's talking? The Mialdot, and Paro's listening. You see that the react that the re- the relationship has been inverted. Um, and um, and so, what is this Vayaslam Batim? If you notice the way that I've connected it, connects to Paro's final decree. Because his final decree is to whom? His final decree is to everybody, which is that anybody out there hears about a Jewish boy being born should throw him in the river, which is a far cry from, although it's the same intent and same result, but a far cry from, in practicality, the original decree that the Mialdot should kill the kids either at birth or before birth. Perhaps Vayaslahem Batim is paro, he makes houses for a different reason. And we saw this originally, and we've shown him in one style. He either locks them up, or he imprisons them, or he makes houses for the Egyptians around them to keep them and make sure they do their job. Maybe Vayaslahem Batim is the following. Paro is afraid that these Mialdot are actually going to go and help Hebrew women give birth before the Egyptians can throw them in the water. And so therefore, Vayaslahem Batim and he locks them up, and now he's able to owe command publicly, if you hear about a Jewish boy being born, you can kill him, because the Mialetit won't get there earlier to save him. A wide range of approaches that we have in looking at these at, at this one phrase, three words, Vayas Batim. And yet, 
going back to the issue of the methodology, with this I'd like to end, is when we look at these at this pasuk, what are we trying to get? So if we're trying to get, and I'm going to take the strict Rashbam approach here, trying to get what does the pasuk mean? Who is Vayas? Who is Lahem? And what are Batim? Then I may be driven in one direction. And that one direction may be occasioned by context of the psukim, context of what's going on around from what we can tell in Mitzrayim, the larger context, and what we know about the Mialdot, etc., and what we know about what happens in the future, including the next pasuk. If, on the other hand, I want to look at this in a more meta-historic fashion, in a more global fashion, in a sense, in a, not global in the sense of universal, but global across time. If I want to look at the story of Mitzrayim and the story of Shibud Mitzrayim and the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim as, as a model, as a paradigm for part of Jewish existence, I may read this differently. Who is the captain of looking at events that happen in Breshit and the beginning of Shemot as being historic paradigms, that's the Ramban. Think about it, the Ramban on at the beginning of the story of Abraham, where he states it explicitly, the Ramban on the Be'er, our Be'erot of the Yitzchak, the Ramban on, on Yaakov and his fighting with the, with the Malach, consistently. These are all portents for the future. These are all establishing patterns for the future. So if I take that approach, and I don't have to take it to the extreme of the Ramban, I'm going to look at this story and say, Vayas lahem batim is a far-reaching statement. And who is the only Vayas in, in Torah? Is Hashem. Hashem is the one who does it all. So what are the batim here are the batim that we know of that are the descendants of these great women. And by the way, even if these great women are Egyptian women, Vayas lahem batim maybe gives them important houses, important households, because they are Yereot Elohim. But if, on the other hand, I'm looking at this as a local story that's about Mitzrayim, that year, in Mitzrayim, that paro, those women, those children, I may interpret it differently and say, Vayaslam Batim seems to really be about paro making houses in one way or another to respond to their failure or their refusal to, um, to kowtow to his terrible decree. So although we studied three words, Vayaslahem Batim, and saw a range of approaches on each one of those words all coming together, we also learned a valuable methodological point about the way that we approach a text, what we're coming to the text with, and perhaps most significantly, what we're looking to get out of the text drives the way that we interpret that text.